Kirby, 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 like that. And wait, Kirby, 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 come inside. There, good. I'm ready for my voiceover. In 1985's Brat Pack Conflagration, St. Elmo's Fire was directed and co-written by horror auteur Joe Schumacher, who would go on to create his masterwork of terror, Batman and Robin, a decade later. Based on true events experienced by screenwriter Carl Kurlander, the film follows a group of friends recently graduated from Georgetown University, an institution with the good sense to prohibit filming on its actual campus. These loathsome humans, they drink, they drive, and they make terrible life choices, mostly with each other. I'll keep this synopsis short because rewatching was so traumatizing. We go into excruciating detail over the course of our conversation, which lasts nearly the length of the movie itself. Our trauma will become yours. Today, on Surprisingly Problematic, our special guest is Christina Halverson, and this is all her fault. So, hi, Christina. Hi, Erica. How are you? I am so relieved that we are finally going to talk about this movie. I watched it like five days ago, and it has been it has been hanging over me like a dark hormone injected cloud. <laughs> I need to process. Yeah. So, could you uh, could you tell me what? Why did you suggest Saint Elmo's Fire? So, it was actually. When when you first told me about this podcast, it was the very first movie that popped up in my head as having been this huge, I don't want to say formative necessarily, because that would really speak volumes about the person I'm trying not to be <laughs> as an adult. But I think I probably saw it four times in the theater and then a lot more on video. And in hindsight, I think it was it was two pieces. It was the high romance levels in the movie but also everyone is just so beautiful to look at and that that's really all I can think of is why it was just burned into my brain as having played such an important role in my middle school early junior high years I think I thought I think I thought in like eighth grade I learned so much you know that that makes a lot of sense because the the movie uh, feels like it was written by an eighth grader <laughs> Like an I feel like grader who does a lot of coke. Well, as all eighth graders did in in, in nineteen eighty five. That is true. That is so, true. So, so, tell me, uh, what, where were you, and like, what were you doing in nineteen eighty five when this movie came out? So, this is kind of an unusual story because my father was in the air force, and so for seventh, eighth, and ninth grade, we actually were living in Oslo, Norway. And what's interesting about this is that I went to the little private American school there, where the military kids and like the uh, diplomats kids, and then a couple of Norwegian kids whose parents wanted them to learn English all went. But there were a total of 17 kids in my grade. So there was one hallway, and that was where all the 7th, 8th, and ninth graders went. And Oh, and 10th grade. After 10th grade, you had to go to boarding school in London. So, oh. but, so I was living out my, teenage, my early teenage years in very close quarters with like 60 kids ranging in ages from 13 to, what, 16 years old. So it was like this little microcosm of everything that could go right and everything that could possibly go wrong during those years. So, Much like this movie. 
<laughs> oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna laugh. I'm gonna cry. Yeah, yeah. So um, the other really interesting thing is that I don't know if this is still the case, but there was like zero crime in the Oslo area, zero, negative zero. And so our parents gave us full reign of like all public transportation at all hours of the night. So we were constantly getting on the light rail or what's called the trick to go downtown Oslo to like snuggle in and see these movies, these eighties Brat Pack movies. And so I just, it, there's a lot here. There's a lot here to talk about. Wow. So it was, it was you and other American kids of service members in Norway. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and like the ambassador's kid. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. And then you would go yeah. to the mall yeah. on the light rail to see these yeah. 80s movies. Oh yeah. Oh, this is, this is real good. Wow. It's, it's <laughs> real good. It's real good. And we'd go a lot, right? We'd go a lot because it was like $5, $3 or whatever. So we'd go back and we'd go back. And I don't even know like how we knew what these movies were because it's not like there were advertisements for them necessarily. It's not like we were watching Norwegian TV. I'm thinking it must have been like billboards Mm -hmm. or letters from our friends in, in the United States. I'm not sure. But like we were all over. I mean, I saw it all. I saw Pretty and Pig, 16 Candles, Breakfast Club. Um, I mean, all of it was in this movie theater in downtown Oslo. Well, well, yeah, I think it's also surrounded by Norwegians who were like, "What is wrong with America?" All the time. <laughs> well, uh, well, back in that time, like we didn't have the internet, and there wasn't like there was cable TV, but not that like there wasn't that much. So these these movies were were big movies so even in america like even in los angeles where i was you know riding my bike to the mall to go see all these movies um yeah we just we went to the movies and you just see like oh what's playing next oh we'll go see that because there was no option to that's exactly right you're exactly right i'm remembering you would just show up at the movie theater and see what was playing yeah so 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 that was the same it was all about the poster it was all about the poster and what a poster St. Elmo's Fire had. I mean, they crammed seven of the most beautiful, like 20-something actors that they could find into this movie. And they're all over these posters and looking like longingly at one another or hopefully off into the distance. And you're just like, hell yeah, I'm going to see that movie. I want to be with those people. And then you get into the movie and find out they're like the most awful people you've ever been around in your life. Like really the the most the most awful people. It's like, wow, would I rather spend time with them or the cast of girls? <laughs> I, know. I about halfway through the movie I was like, this is like the longest, saddest, most fucked up episode of Friends you ever could want to see. <laughs> it was awful. You know, this movie it was so bad. This is real. I was watching it on like a Friday night and about I kept pushing pause to see how much of it was left. And I would just, you know, it was like the clock going by so slowly. And I finally was just like, I have to take a break. It's too much. I went to bed. I swear to you, I dreamed that the movie got better. I dreamed <laughs> that like halfway through the movie, there was like a shift in plot. I was like, oh, now I see why I love this movie so much when I was in eighth grade. And then I woke up and it, it did not get better. It did not get better. But there's so much to talk about. Yeah. So I watched this movie. I don't really have a memory. I think I must have seen it, but I think I saw it 
like at a friend's house on VHS, like late at night and fell asleep. Cause I, I have a feeling I, I had an awareness of this movie. Cause that goddamn song oh, I know. was everywhere. And it wasn't even written about the people in the movie. It was written about a Canadian uh, athlete in a wheelchair. No. Yes. Oh, massive appropriation. Yeah. So the, the guy who wrote the song like probably made a tremendous amount of money, but, um, uh, but was not, uh, necessarily super keen on on the way it was used but it was just played on the radio constantly and even just like it's like playing in my head now because it's such an earworm And also, I will say the main theme. Dun 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 dun. The love. I learned that. I was quite. I was quite the piano player at that time, and I learned that on the piano. And I'm sure that my parents just wanted to murder me because I was playing it constantly. When I first heard that, when the movie was starting, I thought, isn't this the, the soundtrack to Terms of Endearment? Yeah. <laughs> it came out like a year earlier. And that was more all piano or synth, and this was more strings or synth, and then some piano. Dun, 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 dun. So you really know it. It's good stuff. Yeah, so I watched this oh, movie I uh, this morning because I, I taught a workshop yesterday. And then this morning, I was just sitting, like, like recovering and relaxing. And I'm in Canada, and I had my donuts and my Tim Hortons coffee. And I did the exact same thing. I was watching it on my laptop. Uh, through Amazon and um, and I kept checking the progress bar. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, there's there's still 45 minutes left. So uh, so yeah, so we can dive right into talking about the movie. So it opens uh, in in a hospital where this this group of friends, so it's about this group of friends who do at some point in the near past, I guess, I don't know if it was that year, but it seems like it must've been, I don't know, they were at Georgetown. They graduate from Georgetown and, and the movie opens when I guess a uh, Billy, uh, the sax Roblo, Roblo, the sax playing, uh, earring wearing sax coating. That's right. Everywhere he goes, the sax goes slung across his shoulder with no case or Former anything. Frat guy, um, yeah. uh, was with his friend, uh, Wendy, played by Mayor Winningham. And who's in love with him? In, she's in love with him, but she, and she wears she wears cardigans. She wears cardigans, and she she plays a, a virgin. Um, yeah, that is a leading quality. And in fact, in fact, while Roblo, so Roblo's sitting on the back of the ambulance, and all the friends, you get the sense that they're all like rushing in from all these different walks yes. of life that they've kind of these different paths that they've paths that they've taken. They're all coming together in support of these two friends. And in fact, Billy is sitting on the back of the ambulance, and his he's hitting on one of the nurses, and his come on line is. So how do you feel about premarital sex? Yeah. Yeah. Subtlety is not a hallmark of, of this script Agreed. at all. 
at Agreed. all. Yeah. So, um, so his friend, uh, Wendy is, is wealthy and he was apparently drunk driving her car and crashed it. And all the friends are like, Oh, Wendy's, Wendy's dead. Wendy's dead. And she walks out with like a bandaid on her forehead and perfect makeup. Her hair's perfect. Everything's perfect. Except this little cute bandage. It's fine. And yeah. And then the, the movie is off and running. And then while they're at the hospital, Kirby, Emilio Estevez's character, runs into and a former flame of his from college who's a few years older yeah and it's not, and she's not a flame she was just the object of his desire yeah yeah it, it played by andy right. mcdell yeah. and uh, her, yes. her character's name is dale bieberman because sure doctor dr bieberman, bieberman to you but she so if he was a freshman when she was a senior so she's three years older than him and is yeah. a doctor when he just graduated and is in law school who knows but then his and an important doctor yeah she's an important yeah. doctor at this point she would still um be in in medical school like that's conceivable that she could still be in medical school but so none of that makes sense and and he sees her and he's like oh my god this this woman who is like the face of god or something and then then proceeds to stalk her in in the terrifying way for, for the rest of the movie. Quick, what's the meaning of life? Dale Bieberman. Who? Dale Bieberman. Didn't you see her at the hospital tonight? She's a girl that I was madly in love with when we were freshmen. Okay, okay, she's about yay tall, long, dark hair, beautiful face. Okay, okay, remember? Remember that, that, that big fountain, the one on main campus, the one that says knowledge, art, religion, life? The day that we were walking past that, she was sitting on the life side and she just smiled at me. But it's so cute. It's cute stocking. Yeah, it's, it's adorable. Ador stocking. Adorable, adorable stocking. And then we also we meet Kevin, played by Andrew McCarthy. My one true your, love. Your one true love. And um and so Andrew McCarthy was the uh, the love interest in in Pretty in Pink, the inaugural movie of this podcast, uh, which opened the next year can i can i say that on my little amazon prime amazon after i finished watching it suggested next for you on prime pretty in yeah. pink so of course i rolled right into pretty in pink and then my then it was all over then it was like my muscle memory took over i was 14 again i was in love with andrew mccarthy i mean it was just like i was a mess all weekend oh, so what was it about andrew mccarthy what is it because you and andy molly ringwald's character in, in pretty and pink clearly they had this in common well here's what was funny is that in saint elmo's fire i kept waiting i kept waiting to feel that mm -hmm. thrill for for his character for kevin and you know the first time we see kevin he's like wending his way through the hospital, totally like smoking a cigarette in the hospital. He smokes constantly throughout this movie because, you know, he's a bad boy writer, but I wasn't feeling anything. And I was just like, what, where, where is, where are those old feelings for this, this young man? I just, you know, fantasized about for years. And it's not until later in the movie, and we'll get to this, but it's not until later in the movie when the eyes oh. come out. And it's the, it's the, I love you more than I ever thought I could love anyone. I want you. I'm smoldering. I'm a flame. It's the eyes. And those come out and we'll save the, we'll save for which character. And it came, they came out and I was like, there he is. There it is. There's the old stirring. The eyes of Andrew McCarthy. And so, yeah, so he plays a newspaper writer, very world weary, uh, 
22-year-old constantly smoking and asking people about the meaning of, of life. And constantly appending love sucks. Constantly. He's got to say that like a dozen times. In the love movie. sucks, and so uh, so he's uh, he's roommates with Kirby Emilio yeah. Estevez's character, who's in law school, and so he he makes comments about oh love is just you know something that lawyers can make money off of uh, because uh, you know it all ends in divorce. Right. It's a construct. It's a social construct, a social construct. is what he keeps saying. But I will say my my favorite. A comment that he made about love and marriage is that it's a, uh, it was invented by people uh, who are lucky to make it to twenty without being eaten by dinosaurs. I'm sorry. The notion of two people spending their entire lives together was invented by people who are lucky to make it to twenty without being eaten by dinosaurs. Marriage is obsolete. Dinosaurs are obsolete. Marriage is still around. Oh, Kevin. Kevin I, I, so I'm beginning to suspect he's sort of a crappy journalist. <laughs> Oh, Kevin. But he plays the part. He the plays blazers. the part. And I think maybe it's also, so he was uh, simult- He was playing a professional writer who had graduated from Georgetown in this movie. So maybe he was, maybe it was the fact that he looked like a, a high school kid in a blazer pretending to be an adult in this movie. But then in, in Pretty in Pink, he seemed like a very mature high school student. Yes, exactly. You know what that is, though? That's flexibility. <laughs> That's nothing but like showing his range. As an actor, I mean, oh, you gotta no, love the him. person. The person who has a range in this movie is Mare Winningham because she was playing a virgin while pregnant with her second child. <laughs> Are you kidding? No, me? I love this podcast. No, no. she was twenty six and uh, and pregnant with either her second or third child at this point, and playing a virgin. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so. she is a wonder. She is a wonder of our times. I love. I love Mary Winningham. I love her. I was really sorry to remember that she was in this movie, that she had to suffer through it. Well, well, the thing about, about suffering through this particular movie is um, it was, uh, it did not get fantastic reviews, but it was a no, it did not. hit. It was an actual oh, yeah. hit movie. It, you know, it, it tripled like its budget uh, in, in returns and uh, yeah, I guess people can, the poster was in fact everywhere. Uh, yep. Although I, I read an, a later interview with the actors reflecting on it. And I think it was Rob Lowe who said like, that was a crappy photo. They just put us all in this photo and we all, oh, we totally all sort of dumpy. I think. Oh wait, you can't yeah, there Photoshop was, in the 1980s. Yeah, there was no Photoshopping. No, there was, um, there was the retouching, no. maybe a little retouching by hand. No, but I think if you look back at the, at the uh, photo, the poster for the film, they um, they look a little bit dumpy, uh, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. I see. But uh, but the other thing is, so, that, you know, it's a real world. Yeah. It's the eighties, and the eighties. The eighties were tough. We're tough. In fact, at one point, um, Demi Moore's character talks about how tired she feels at twenty two. <laughs> I'm so tired. Yeah. So so her character Jules is the she's the party girl. She comes in. She comes into the hospital in what's supposed to be cocktail attire she looks like she's been to the opera except a really underground weird yeah like, yeah sex which opera. was well oh, that was the 80s the 80s was an underground sex opera. Yeah. one yeah. big sex opera. and and was the man with her was that supposed to be her boss because she talks about having an affair with her boss throughout the entire no i think she gets involved so she works she works at a national bank, bank. which she is hilarious right and we we see her in the bank one time 
and she's smoking like a fiend in the bed. This was something I can't get used to this in seventies and eighties movies where people are just smoking constantly and everywhere. It just like yanks me out of the moment. But anyway, we, we see that she's two months ahead in her paycheck or that she's already gotten her paycheck for two months and she's begging for a third month. And that like somehow, I think that's when she makes the decision Uh, that she's going to get involved with her boss. Yeah, because she has... I think it's a reaction to being okay. in the hole. So she came into the hospital with just some date. He was in a tux. She was in this pink satin right. bow thing. But she was wearing these earrings, these earrings that had like a fake... There were so many fake pearls in this movie. So many. All different all lengths. Like different Ali Sheedy's character uh, was wearing them uh throughout the entire movie but she she came in with these like pink it was like a pink rhinestone and um and teardrop shaped fake pearl earring and i had yeah. those earrings i had those earrings Stop i got them at that. the mall probably at some department store but but i, I didn't remember them did you get them because the no store? no they were just that the, so the earrings were just like something from a department store but i but and i couldn't really remember it was all starting to come back to me like oh there was an outfit that went with that with those those earrings it wasn't like a pink satiny dress with a bow like that but uh erica jules is your spirit <laughs> wow i i hope not because that um that would go to a, a terrible place so um jules goes to a terrible place because she has this uh, immense cocaine habit along with like running through all her money buying her her furniture will get to her apartment demi moore was cast when uh, joel schumacher just saw her walking down the hallway and said hey are you an actress and uh, yeah, sure, she was an actress, and she she'd recently come off of uh, working on General Hospital, but she was in fact uh, a, a kind of an addict in real life at that point, and yes. he made her yes. clean up so yes. that she could yep. then play <laughs> yeah. an addict in this movie. Yes, all of that is true. Yeah, I don't even know if she was really like an addict. It, it's hard. It's hard to get a good baseline. You know, because having just watched Pretty in Pink and see, uh, you know, James Spader is just there packing coke the entire time in high school, that it's it's hard to calibrate. Like, was that amount of cocaine? Like, she was in banking. Maybe that was a totally standard amount of cocaine in a film canister size package that she was. I could not believe. I was like, that is like a pill bottle. It is a and it's clear. It's clear glass, and you see that it's three ounces of of coke or something. She's just carrying around, having just graduated from college and having no money. But but sure, so she was the she was the party girl, and yeah. And then there's then there's uh, Ali Sheedy's character Leslie and and her boyfriend Judd Nelson, who Alec, yes, who move into this horrifying loft. So we need a, a bingo card for, for 80s uh, stereotypes and images and things like that. And glass bricks are, are one of them. But wow, it was like one full wall of that apartment was glass bricks. In fact, that encased their bedroom area was just sort of a, a curving oval wall of glass bricks. Well, and that was to offset a billboard-sized Nike mural that somehow landed in there i literally was like was this apartment built around a (laughs) billboard or the side of another building that this mural had been painted on i mean it's really very overwhelming and i mean the loft itself has to be 
two yeah. to 3,000 square feet. I mean, it's just enormous. And this is this is another, you know, like we pointed this at friends, like with friends all the time. Oh, no way would they be able to afford that apartment. But I mean, come on. He's supposedly working for a Republican politician, which is another big, big like yeah. joke in the movie. Oh, he's becoming a Republican. And he's like, well, I'm going to make more money. And then she, I completely missed this, but you said she's an architect. But again, first year out of school, living in, were, were they still in D.C.? Yeah, I think they were supposed to be in the, in the D.C. area. Yeah. Okay, okay. Um, which is weird because we saw zero landmarks the entire time, but whatever. Because most of the most of the movie takes place in one of these ridiculous apartments. But yeah. anyway, those two. Those two, are, those two have yeah, problems. They, they have the some outside. problems because, yeah, I didn't know what her career was. But there were some, some very amusing references to like, oh, you're an 80s woman. Oh, your career. So, uh, so Alec, he's pressuring her to get married. And that's a, that's a very strange thing. Yes. So all of the men in this movie, with the exception of uh, Rob Lowe's Billy, the, the sax playing free spirit, who is already married because he apparently got some woman pregnant and they're in a terrible marriage and he's suffering. But if you get married and then he goes around married. and uh, is to like put the moves on and, and just dogging all around town. All of the men are really, yeah. they, they just want to settle right down, I guess, sort of. And so, yeah, yeah, so Alec is pressuring Leslie to get married and she said she wants to have a career and he's like, oh, your stupid career. Yeah. And I didn't know I had to read afterwards in, in some article that she was an architect and then you look at the and she's got a drafting table in the horrible loft. So so maybe yeah, maybe this is supposed to be, oh, it's an artsy industrial space. Maybe that maybe with our 2018 eyes, we just can't recognize uh, 1980 for industrial space. <laughs> I don't even know. I, I don't even know what that means anymore. I'm so, I'm like just, I'm waiting. So okay. that we, that we, okay. I'm yes. Then, about Jules then let's talk about, yeah. Cause we saw the, cause there was the outside of the bar, uh, St. Elmo's, which was their, um, their college hangout. And something I learned, cause going back, doing, doing some research about these things. Uh, cause in watching pretty in pink, uh, Matt and I were very confused that these high school kids hung out at a at a bar and seemed to be let into a some sort of club that also served alcohol and sold to. And so, sold to, yes. And then they referred to this this bar that was very important to them, the movie's named after St. Elmo's Bar, that this was the bar that they hung out in all through college. And I thought, well, that's strange because the drinking age is 21. Well, it turns out that um, prior to some uh, congressional action in around 1985, 1986, many places the DC area included would serve wine and beer at 18. <laughs> we were born at the wrong time. We barely missed it. We barely missed it. Yeah. I don't this know if this fair. is true for you, but I didn't, I didn't really have an issue acquiring um, alcohol prior to turning 21. And I'm not sure if I'd want to hang out in that bar. No, that's fair. And, and I'm a big talker. I wasn't a drinker in high school at all, but that was part of, I think like the romanticism of like, yeah, look at these people just drinking, you know, freely and running around. And, and I was terrified of sex at this age and they're just having sex with everybody. And it just really captured my, my imagination. Wow. That's funny. Cause I'm terrified of sex now that I've watched this movie. <laughs> but we didn't get to, Oh, we do have that. Well, we'll talk. So about they go and they, um, so, yeah. so Jules, we see Jules apartment. So, um, Kevin, it's Kevin. Oh, Kevin. Of course, Andrew McCarthy comes over into Jules apartment and it is pink. It is 
Mary Kate. And there's a mural on one wall. And is that is that Billy Idol? Is that I don't a- know if mm-hmm. it was Billy Idol or the guy from Duran Duran? Like I it was and it's like trimmed in neon. Yeah. Like there's neon accents. Like neon lights, not neon paint, neon lights. Yeah. Neon lights on this this sort of black line drawing, line painting of just like 80s man face. Sure. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That is exactly. And she is also in this enormous apartment. Huge, huge apartment that's all painted pink with this mural. And she talks about, oh, she's, you know, uh, Kevin comes in. He's like, how do you afford this? Like, ha ha, credit cards. And I was like, what's your credit limit? A, B, you can't pay for an apartment on a credit card. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, all this furniture and stuff. So, so yeah, so she has a huge apartment and then she says, Oh, my, my next door neighbor is my decorator, Ron. And, um, and she, and then others throughout the movie, because I guess Andrew McCarthy has been outlandishly celibate and his, his friends are like, Oh, are you, are you gay? And, and I guess her next door neighbor, Ron, is gay with his interior decorating, stereotypical gay career. But what I will say is that unlike so many movies of this time, the way that his friends talked about uh, the possibility of him being gay and introducing um, him to her next door neighbor, Ron, who's gay, it was very, I, I would say, respectful. <laughs> Definitely. Like, oh, there's nothing wrong with with you and you deserve to be happy. There's the brink of insanity and then there is the abyss, Kevin, which obviously you've fallen into. Of. Gay became very chic in the No, I'm not ashamed. I'm not gay and I'm not staying. Kevin! Look at me in this robe. You are no. Look, let me just introduce you to Ron. He's gay too and he's so fabulous. Yeah, and they and they do what every uh, straight person, I guess, does upon meeting their second gay friend, which is introduce them exactly. to their first gay friend and say, "Oh, clearly, because you're both gay, you yes, should date." And then, correct. and then when we first see Ron coming out of his apartment, uh, he is holding a, a fruity beverage. That is how you see. Oh, Ron is gay because he is drinking something pink in a glass. So people are saying, "Oh, like Kevin, uh, perhaps you're gay, but meanwhile he's you know carrying this secret torch for for another character." Uh, but but yeah, they're like, "That's great. You're you should be who you are." So yes, there was right. unlike because you know, because they have friends who take each other for who they are. Yeah, that's that's one of the themes of the movie is that no matter how messed up your friends are you're still, they're still friends. There's still that core thing, the core experience of college, I guess, that binds you together. I'm not sure. And that's the big, like the big bookmarks of the movie. I can't remember when it happened. I only remember the seven of us always there, friends or something. All like, in love with you each know, other. All yeah. Exactly. That was, that was a strong movie. So I'll say like the treatment of, of all potentially problematic issues, I will say talking about being gay was the least problematic aspect of this movie so yeah. most, most healthy thing and and ron was uh, you know he was the next door neighbor respected i guess he took credit cards they're friends so she department. had this count. Yeah. yeah so then so there were so many different intersecting relationships in this movie that i had to go back and read the wikipedia page a few times cross check with imdb because while all this is going on while they're establishing all these different couplings and relationships so we have kirby emilio estevez's character um trying to get back in touch with uh the doctor played Andy by, McDowell, who uh, I thought was the most beautiful woman alive. Andy McDowell, 
Yeah. So she's much more. Yes. What? What? Why is she giving him the time of day? And also, and also, why is she yes, living in the that is fair part? enough. I don't because he actually asks her out on a date and she accepts. Yeah, I guess a lunch. Yes, date. exactly. But like what? You know, and he shows up like two hours early. And again, it's adorable stalking. He wants everything to be perfect. And then she shows up and, oh, she has to take a call. And of course, the call comes in on the corded phone in the restaurant because apparently she left the phone number at the hospital. She has to leave. He's left alone. But like, why was she there in the first place? What could he possibly have, have said or done to get her to go out with him? Yeah, because he remembers they they once went to a movie together and I can't even remember what, what he, or I can't imagine what he would have been like as a college freshman that she <sighs> being a, a gorgeous, beautiful, obviously if she got into med school right out of college, which she would have had to very intelligent, accomplished uh, woman. Why would she have lunch with this little weirdo who shows up and he's like, I've loved you since freshman year. Please have lunch with me. And then, and so then that sets him off on, on the, the complete uh, stock arama that happens for the rest yeah. of the movie. And it's, it is revealed that she, like, she has a boyfriend. We see her boyfriend, her like tall, handsome. And he's blonde. not even a boyfriend. He's like a man friend. Like, that's the thing is that he's clearly like a grown ass yeah, man. Probably another yes, doctor. Yes, exactly. And we've got Mila Estevez playing sort of like this overzealous kind of 14 year old character who just graduated from college almost. Yeah. And, uh, and so then there's a, there's a party. Cause all of this, it's really, it's difficult to, to remember this in any sort of uh, Congress order, even though I just watched the movie because there are so many just scenes that feel so disconnected. I never knew what time of day it was throughout this entire movie. It's like, let's get a drink. Oh, I'm going to show up at your house. Oh, now we're having a party. Now we're having lunch. Suddenly we're talking about something that apparently happened three yeah. weeks ago. And I, yeah. I didn't know what season it was because at, at a certain point, um, Andy McDowell's character, Dr. Dale Bierman, goes skiing. And like, it wasn't winter in DC. Where are they possibly going? And to I skiing? think, I think part of what is what is happening here is that they have literally collected sort of again this group of beautiful people. And they're like, how can we put them together in these little vignettes? Mm -hmm. And and it's the vignettes themselves, I think, that held the power for me because I didn't know what time of day it was. I didn't know what time of year it was. I didn't know where they were half the time. Um, but as I was going through the movie, it was literally, it was these moments that would happen that would like, it was like being punched in the face by, again, it's like that muscle, you know what I'm talking about muscle memory yeah. when you watch a movie mm -hmm. where it, you're flooded by the feelings that you had as a 14 year old, mm -hmm. it's just totally discombobulating. But it was, it, it wasn't so much like the plot building or worrying or wondering about what was going to happen next, or even like real emotional investment in the outcome of where, of these characters relationships or their own individual scenarios and it was more like the moment that Andrew McCarthy that Kevin you know slaps the newspaper on on the windshield of Ali Sheedy's Jeep to show that he has his first byline or or the the minute that you know he first kisses his love interest or um, seeing Rob Lowe up on the stage like you know playing his saxophone it was like those moments of of you know tween teenage ecstasy that really stuck out for me and nothing to do with 
a story that would bother with such minute details <laughs> as what time of day it was or how much time had passed yeah. since we last saw this yeah. character. So, so can you, I, so what's his name? Uh, Billy, Billy, uh, Rob, Rob yes. Lowe. So Rob, Rob Lowe, I, I would say it's a, looking at this, Rob Lowe was to me the most objectively good looking man in this movie. Well, you know, I, uh, yeah, he, he was, was like 19. Okay. All right. Go ahead. Okay, different styles, different yeah. styles. So we have okay. Andrew McCarthy had his look. Rob Lowe, beautiful man, um, beautiful had man. his look. Beautiful man, beautiful man. That I guess they had to ugly up a little bit with his his earring and his like necktie, and he was wearing like his frat cardigan under a blazer and carrying a sax. This was like an uglifying Charlie's Theron level of <laughs> of just making him. At the same time, talking about like, oh, he's he's going around with all these women. He's constantly, constantly sexually assaulting people, right? By today's standards, definitely always sexually assaulting people. Yeah. And yeah. Um, but wearing this ridiculous outfit. So he goes to dinner at uh, Wendy's house. You know the um, the insecure virgin girl who still lives at home. Yeah, who still lives at home with her rich parents. Rich. So she. Yeah. She is, is one of these like heart of gold characters. So she works in the welfare office. And so there's a great scene with a welfare queen. So we can check that off the list right. uh, who comes in to collect her welfare check and say some spicy things about how Wendy should get some cute clothes and get a man. And of course the woman collecting her welfare check refuses, refuses the offer of training or job counseling. Uh, she's just there to pick yes. up her check. And she doesn't She doesn't want to hear about anything else. Just give me the money. With her parcel of multiracial kids in tow. Mayor Whittingham sort of has this world-weary look on her face. Like, I will yeah. move to yeah. fight another After day. giving the check to the, right. the deadbeat woman with the black eye and, like, four children <laughs> of various races. Yeah. So, it, I mean, let's... It, like the woman herself right. was, a, so, was a white no woman. Points? So. No points? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But then, but then the only um, the only character uh, the only person of color uh, with like a speaking role was the the black prostitute Naomi who is an associate of uh, Andrew McCarthy's character Kevin because he walks around and she talks to him and she tells him oh I you know she's asking men do they want dates you want a date you want a date. And they're having a little chat. And he said, oh, oh, why don't you ever ask me if I want to date? And she's like, oh, I, th I thought you were gay. Yeah, right. And then he asks her what the meaning of life is or or, or something like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that was, of course, the one, uh, the one person of color in the movie with a speaking role was a prostitute. So the prostitute with the yeah. eyes of gold, stereotype check on that. So they check. go to... So the, the movie goes to, to Wendy's parents' house where there's a big dinner and she's invited Billy to the dinner because she loves Billy uh, so much, even though he constantly takes money from her and, and crashes her car. And then Billy, well, I so want wacky, to, I want dinner, to, he goes up on the roof. Recall one other minute during that dinner before we have that climactic moment of Billy on the roof, which is, was a huge, um, touchstone of humor for me mm. which is the when she says she says oh you know my mom whispers things she doesn't think should be talked about you'll get used to it and one time the mom's I thought it was a running joke throughout the meal this is what I had remembered but it's like a one shot thing where she's like did you hear about so-and-so's aunt cancer right and immediately after she's like so Billy where did you two meet where did you meet Wendy again 
prison. <laughs> I remember this. The theater just erupting in hilarity every time I saw it. And for the rest of like high school, we would whisper, you know, these, the, we'd be like prison <laughs> or, or, you know, marijuana or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it was this hilarious thing. And so that was one of those moments where I saw it and I was just like, that's it. That's where that came from. It's not nearly as funny as I remember it being. So anyway, I just, that was a moment in the movie I really wanted to call out as important, an important thing that shaped my jokes along with like Monty Python and uh, Monty Python yeah. in high school. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So Billy's out of the roof. Billy's on the roof. Her parents are freaking out and her parents are again. So, so most of the, the characters in this movie are supposed to be 21, 22, you know, 24 ish. And and the pressure to get married is just off the charts because because Wendy's dad is like, oh, I, I there's a, a nice, um, so I guess her family is Jewish. And he's like, oh, there's a nice young a Jewish man named Howie. And so he is constantly trying to get her to meet Howie. And at one point bribes her with a car. Like, oh, if you get engaged to, to Howie, I will give you a yes. car. And she's like, no. Didn't that happen to you? No. That didn't. No, I did no, have a friend happen. who was bribed with a car to stay in college when she wanted to drop out. Um, oh. Her parents got her a car. And also, this was supposed to be a very nice car. It was some sort of Chrysler. And it's like, okay, sure. Woo, Chrysler. And she's like, oh, I'm so uncomfortable driving this car around the, the poor people. Work <laughs> yeah. with. And, yeah, right. and there's even a moment where she goes to like meet with her father and, and discuss her life and uh, wanting her own place and something like that. And the diner, which is supposed to be in a bad part of town where she works, uh, the wall is made <laughs> out of glass bricks. Of course. I, I love this motif. And yeah. And in this, you know, and the, here's the other thing too, though, is that the idea of love throughout this movie is, and I mean, I guess this is pretty, this is pretty standard, but it's really like, love sucks. Love is just a construct. No, love is something worth holding out for. Love can be, you know, love is love for yourself and taking time for yourself to figure out what you want to do in your life. But here it is really like, she's trying to convince her father, no dad, I don't want an arranged marriage. I have love for Billy, unrequited love. And I'm, and I'm just, I'm, I was just watching that just thinking like, how, how did that even play 30 years ago that a woman would have to defend herself to her father about not getting pushed into what is essentially an arranged marriage? It was just crazy for me. And then the car came into it and she loves Billy and she's a virgin. And I don't know. It was a lot. Yeah. And then later that evening, she's alone with Billy and, uh, and he's like in the house, in, the house, right. in her parents' house, uh, downstairs in the study. In the study. Yes. And they, there's a little like post Chablis makeout session kind of starts and it's like, oh, will this be the moment that she'll lose her virginity to Billy? But then Billy reaches up her skirts and discovers uh, the prototypical spanks. The granny guess, panties. Sort of, the granny panties. The granny panties in sort of a shaping garment because she does talk about um, being feeling bad about being chubby throughout the movie, and also her mother talks about her fluctuating weight before dinner, which you know was probably like they're, they're probably pretty true to a lot of people's experiences of having sure. dinner at their mother's house, which is like, oh, honey, you've put on some weight. Um, 
oh, why aren't you yeah, eating? Exactly. Yeah. So, so some true to life uh, food dysfunction there. And so he, he makes a little joke about her, um, her garment. He says it's essentially something about it's, we'll call it a scuba, like a scuba accessory or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Scuba suit, that's right. Oh, yeah. Your right. scuba suit, which isn't even the worst thing because he doesn't go, oh, you're chubby. He says, oh, you're wearing this funny undergarment, which, um, which given the popularity of Spanx in yes. these days must yes. be a, a pretty common uh, encounter for a lot of a lot of men. We'll have to put uh, some show links there to explain <laughs> to the great. men. What- you know, what else was striking to me about that scene is that they're sitting awkwardly next yes. to each other. There's not even any preamble. He just, they just start kissing and he immediately like grabs her yeah. chest and she pushes him away. And then he kind of smiles and they start kissing again and then he goes up the skirt. And the entire scene lasts maybe 22 seconds, maybe 25 seconds. It's just like, these are the, this is, this is sex. This is the sex that she's been avoiding. Yeah. It was just very, it was very off-putting. Foreplay was not invented until 1989. <laughs> According to Wikipedia. According to Wikipedia. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so, so they have, they have that whole scene and then um, other things happen and then there's a uh so billy has been fired from his previous job yes. for, for not showing up uh, he gets a job with a a korean businessman yeah who who and, it's basically like a personal assistant right yeah but all, all we see is billy in the hot tub with some other girl and the man right. comes home right. and, and he's like oh you weren't supposed to be home for for a couple of other days and and leaves and then gets fired from that job but then later on um al um, uh, Kirby, Emilio Estevez's character, right, gets a job for the yep. same guy as that personal assistant, and and he has he has been fired from his job. We we failed to mention serving at St. Elmo's because that's where he was working. Yes, was at St. Elmo's, and uh, yeah, yeah, and and so he yeah, gets he- this job for this guy, and his entire he realizes very quickly. That well, he's gotten this job because he's identified. You know what the key to Dale's heart is, and what matters here is money. So I'm going to go make some money because she must be making a ton of money because she's oh, yeah, a doctor, right? And that's what he needs to win her love and yeah. respect is money. So he he sells himself to this Korean guy. This guy goes out of town, and he's like, "Now's my chance. I'm going to have a party and show Dale what I am made of." So he arranges this like crazy party at this guy's yeah. at this rich guy's house. Yeah. But I think that party is after he walks in on her at a fancy party previous to this, right? Where he sees her through That's a window. Right. Because he was following her. Because right. he was following her. He follows her to a fancy party. He sees her in, in there in evening wear with a hole. That's exactly right. That's he, the that's the catalyst for him. Yes. He walks in out of the rain. The the butler, one of the, the people working at the party, says, Oh, do you have an invitation? What are you doing here? And he walks up to her and she's like, What are you what are you doing here? And he says, I'm obsessed. And she leaves know. the party and takes him to her house. And she's got the shitty apartment with the roommate who hates her. And so she's like, oh, she's the beautiful, accomplished woman yes. who's the secret slob. And her apartment, her shared apartment, looks to be about a quarter of the yes. size of yes. Jules. Yes. Giant pink yes. apartment. However, that works. But she invites her stalker back home and is like, oh, 
ha ha. Like, oh, I'm the one. I'm the problem. You're adorable. Yeah, I, I'm actually not all that. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, exactly. So then, then he's like, okay. And then she makes a comment like, oh, being a doctor, I thought it was about helping people, but maybe it's about money. She makes this offhanded comment. Yeah, so exactly then he right. gets the, um, yeah, the Korean businessman's driver to uh to drive him so he's like some big shot like oh i'm all about the money now oh i'm throwing this party come to this party and she's like oh yeah yeah sure whatever and then the party this is i saw this movie like four days ago and i've completely blocked this part out of my brain okay this is the one this is the one storyline that just i guess was so disturbing to me that i just i and i just all i remember is her just constantly going kirby Kirby, Kirby, <laughs> like that. Yeah, uh, because so so he he walks in on her and she yep. takes him home. She leaves this foray that she's on a date and takes him back to her house through the rain. Then he comes and shows up and invites her to a party. Oh, I, he runs. He must run out of her apartment. So then he throws this fancy party for her. His friends all show up, and that's that. I see, like he's got like it's a it's a slightly diverse friend group at yeah. that point. It's only his extremely white friends who are talking in D.C. And so then he's agitated because she's not showing up. So he continuously calls yeah. the hospital looking for to her, find looking for her, and yeah. then he shows up at her apartment and threatens. Her that's that's how in love he is yeah. Erica. he yells up to the window in a streetcar <laughs> yeah. desire fashion the roommate comes to the window and is like are you he's she's she's like my roommate's off she loves skiing dr beaverman is skiing and he said tell me where and i'm really curious where at this point right. because i'm like is it even winter where do you go drive to go skiing from washington dc and then he says, you know, I'll, I'll do a bad thing to you if you don't tell me. So she tells him. I mean, at that point, if, if I were that roommate, I would have told him, I would have told him like Colorado or something at that point. Yes. And then I would have called the cops. Yes. Yes. But no. But no. So she, she gives him an actual address. He drives Wendy's yes. car. Yes. Poor little Wendy's always car. ready to help. Into the always snow. Always ready to help. No snow tie. Yeah. And then it is sometime of the night middle of the night he knocks on the door and is immediately answered a, a man answers we're in your bathroom no he is just wrapped in a blanket he's like naked oh, under a blanket right the there was a lot of that too of dale Bieberman, and uh and then he freaks out because there's there's a boyfriend there and he goes back in the car but he can't drive away because the car is stuck in the snow andy mcdowell comes out and instead of saying I'm calling the cops. And wait, Kirby, 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 come inside. Yes. Kirby, come inside. Yeah, okay. yeah. I'm ready for my voiceover. Yes, Kirby. Oh, well, there's a special, there's a very special voiceover note about Andy McDowell in just a moment. Um, so she comes out and, and she's very, she's so nice to him. She's like, come inside, you'll freeze. Her boyfriend comes out and instead of punching Kirby or leaving him to die in the snow or calling the cops says, come yeah. inside, you'll freeze. And so he spends the night and the next morning in what is perhaps the, the most psychotic two minutes of this movie, they're saying goodbye. She gives this speech like, oh, maybe back and, and think maybe it should have been you because stalking is attractive or something. And then her boyfriend says, hey, hang on, I'll take a picture of this guy. <laughs> Let me go get the camera. So, drive carefully. 
Nice meeting you, Kirby. Uh, honey, I'll get the camera and we'll take a photo of you guys, okay? I don't really know you that well, but you seem like a fine person. And I want you to know that I'm flattered by all this. And deep down, I'm sure for a long time, I'll wonder if maybe somehow this isn't my loss. Let me go get the camera. And then the yeah. only reasonable thing is, let me take a picture in case she goes missing and I need to show a picture of you. <laughs> that would have been, that would have been like, okay, I kind of get where he's going to like play along to get some evidence. That's the whole thing. Is that she treats the whole thing as such a sweet teddy bear crush. And that, oh, Kirby, Kirby, you're so sweet. I'm really not all that. You yeah. should go find love somewhere else. You know, and in the meantime, he's getting crazier and crazier and crazier. But then, of course, the boyfriend goes and to get the camera. And while the boyfriend gets the camera, they're standing out there. And then he, like, grabs her and dips her and kisses her. And then the boyfriend comes out and takes a photo of them, a Polaroid photo. And then instead of retaining it into evidence, he hands it to Kirby. And Kirby's like, oh, no, like, you can keep this because then he's complete or something like that. He's accepted. He, like... <laughs> He kissed her, and then he drives away, yes. pumping his fist in the air. Like, I showed her. This was totally yeah, worth it. I totally just sexually assaulted a doctor. Yes. Cool. Woo! Woo! So, then, um, so then Judd Nelson's character, we find out, he... He was, you know, of course, he had every man in this movie has, has feelings about the what the women in their life should be doing, which is mostly marrying men. He he is apparently quite hot for Ali Sheedy, but that thinks that her wearing his old pajamas is kind of dowdy. And he's like, oh, I'm going to buy you some a red nighty, some red lingerie, because lingerie, extremely important in the 80s. And is, in fact, one of the IMDb keywords for this movie. <laughs> and then he, it's, it's revealed. He tells... Um, Andrew McCarthy, he said, hey, so I went out to buy this nighty, and there was a leggy blonde sales girl. That's her day job when she's not in CZ Top oh, videos or something. Yeah. He said, oh, she offered to model it for me. And then oh, the wacky, wacky Alec is how I think of him. Just yeah. cannot be contained. Wacky, wacky Alec. Like, and then he gave that same nighty to his wife or his oh his, not wife want to be fiance want to be fiance yeah so he really wants to marry her and he thinks like oh if i get married i'll stop cheating and of course yes. Andrew McCarthy, man of the world is like you know that's not how it, it works right so, right right leslie has to marry me soon why are you pregnant what is your marriage hurry i'm gonna kill myself it's only peppers out i can't believe what i just did I innocently go downtown to buy the nightgown, and this amazingly leggy blonde sales girl offers to model it for me. So we wind up doing it standing up in the dressing room in front of a three-way mirror. So there's six of you. Ho, ho, ho. If Leslie would just marry me, marriage is going to make you faithful. Yes. And of course she's going to find out, and then she did. She guessed it, yes. right? She guessed it, and he can, and, and Kevin confirmed it. And Kevin it. confirmed it. 
and and then and then it's revealed she, she goes, she goes to Kevin's apartment like, oh. she doesn't have anywhere else to go and oh it's oh, messy and right. because- and but thank you for letting me stay and then it she starts looking around the apartment and she's like what's this oh it's a coffin I thought the chicks would think it's cool somehow and you know oh what's this more chick magnet stuff he uses this that it's supposed yeah. to be a chick magnet it's trap fake awards yeah so again, oh, right, 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 right. All of the men in this movie are sociopaths. So in order to attract women, Kevin, uh, the the up-and-coming newspaper writer, has a coffin. He has a, a trophy shelf of fake writing awards. And then he has a cookie tin full of photos. Which of- she happens to wander over to, despite the fact that there is junk piled everywhere in this apartment. She's magnetically attracted to this cookie tin. And have you ever tried to open one of those? Like when they're full of butter cookies, you try to open it up and it's really hard to open up. It's really, really hard to open up. But she like pops it right open and she's like, ah, look at all these photos of me. Is this part of your collection of things too? And then he's like, oh, you caught me. I'm a... I'm actually super in love with you. And she's fresh off of, okay, so she has at the, at the big party that Kirby was throwing to attract Dale, that's where she confronted, uh, I can't even, there's so many psychopaths, I can't even keep track of all their names. That's Alex, where she Alex. confronts Alec. And then Alec is angry, instead of saying like, wow, I'm a horrible person, then he gets angry at Kevin saying like, oh, you told her things and then they shatter stuff in the korean businessman's fancy home and then that's when uh leslie alishidi's character says oh no i guessed it now it's confirmed now i'm leaving you she goes back no, to the apartment she doesn't, she doesn't say i'm leaving you he says i want you out of the apartment tonight. oh that's right that's right so she says you're unfaithful and his reaction to that is well I'm kicking you out of the apartment. That's exactly right. Get out of the apartment. Get out of the apartment. And then she goes over to Kevin's place, cookie tin, coffin. Oh, hey, it turns out um, like he's been obsessed over her. And then they have a, a tender moment of fake pearl um, and Vaseline lens love, which. Well, uh, I, I want to talk about this for just a second. Okay. Because this, this sex scene was a penultimate uh, sort of hormonal awakening sex scene for me. Because it was in that moment in that apartment when Andrew McCarthy brings out the eyes. Ah. And the eyes awaken and they are on her and she is realizing this is what it's like to truly be wanted by a man. Mm-hmm. And they they make out on the couch, and there's a shower scene where they're having such raucous sex that the shower door comes down off of the shower. And then after the shower, they're in bed together, staring longingly and lovingly into each other's eyes. And I'm like, this is going to happen. This is going to happen for him because now she sees the light. Now she sees the light. So I just want to be clear that this sex scene – which was a, not really, there was no sex. There was just a lot of fumbling and kissing and naked shoulders. But in my mind, like this was, this was, this may have been why I love the movie so much because uh, Andrew McCarthy. Okay. So that, that was the moment with Andrew McCarthy. Well, so that what I learned about that particular scene might make you feel a little bit better about Andrew McCarthy because, so she's there in the shower with not taking off her fake pearls that she's sporting the entire time. And yeah, it gets a, it gets a little raucous. The shower door comes down. So 
what I found out is that in that scene, uh, she was really nervous about that scene. Ali Sheedy was really nervous about about filming the sex scene. And um, and so she was very tentative. And Joel Schumacher, who was directing, yelled at this poor young woman, come on, like make it more lively. You're supposed to be fucking. And so she starts crying, of course, because this man who's her boss, when she's in this very delicate situation with a whole film crew, filming her in the shower with Andrew McCarthy, she was wearing a bodysuit. So she wasn't like totally naked for the scene, but it was a very vulnerable sort of moment in the shower with her fake pearls and Andrew McCarthy. She gets yelled at. And, um, and apparently Andrew McCarthy then yelled at Joel Schumacher and was like, whoa, like, that's not okay. So, so he was a, he was a gentleman during that shower sex scene. My hero. And, and the shower door coming down uh, actually happened as an accident during filming, but they, they left it in. You can kind of see, you can kind of see, and she rolls with it, despite the fact that she's an upset girl who is woman, excuse me who is wearing a bodysuit and being yelled at by, yelled by the director. Not so fucking that consummate professional right there. Yeah. She is Ali Sheedy, complete, complete professional. So that happens. Right. And then, and then they're in bed and that was actually, so they had a little chemistry. They actually did have some, some chemistry of all the whacked out relationships in this movie. That moment really felt, Oh, I, I just got booted. Um, by my my boyfriend who said he wanted to marry me but turns out is a so a total cheating psychopath so i'm a little vulnerable i go to you turns out oh you totally i'm the only one for you and you've been totally celibate because of me this is refreshing okay that dynamic seems real plausible but they're in bed together when then alec comes over in who knows is it morning is it night who knows who, who knows what time it is it's saint elmo's fire doesn't matter <laughs> Yeah. Um, so Judd, so Judd Nelson, Alec, uh, walks in and he's like, oh, hey, uh, oh, it sounds like it seems like you've got somebody there since you're being awkward. Uh, oh, is it that fat chick from the bar or something awful like that? Of course, something awful, something yeah. awful. And then and then brave Ali Sheedy, Leslie walks out and she's like, no, it's me. And then it's like a moment. She's like, I, you know, I did this of my own. This is me and my my own sexual agency. And all while wearing a, a, a blanket wrapped around her naked body. Yeah. So that was it. That was it. That was a theme. That was that was yeah. a look. It was a yeah. look with the clothes were hard. Clothes were hard. Clothes were hard. Yeah, those diaphanous lingerie things. And they did yeah. show her like earlier in the movie um, wearing the red nighty under the pajamas as sort of a, a surprise for uh, uh, for Alec. Um, the red nighty yeah. that I guess yeah. he had. Um, uh, sexed up the sales oh, girl in the God. dressing room. Oh, yeah. So that was oh. surprisingly problematic. Yeah, Erica. Surprisingly problematic. So then, then at some other point, like Billy and um, uh, who does who rescues Jules? So Jules is in at so Jules rescues Jules. Um, no, oh, you mean at the oh at the party? There's a party. So Jules. So in another one of these vignettes, and I think it probably is best to think of this movie as a series. Like thinking about it, like oh, it's just these disconnected vignettes, and that all of a sudden makes a lot more sense. So she's in, at a party, uh, doing a lot of coke with some uh, Arab businessmen. I guess she just refers to them. Yeah. Six. Well, they're six guys wearing. I mean, they're they're dressed as Arab businessmen. They're wearing like turbans. Yeah, and uh, so, but she makes a phone call to the way Arab businessmen do. Sorry, it's just, it's so horrible. That scene is so horrible. All right, go ahead. Yeah. So who like who is it? Billy rescues her. 
Is it Billy who rescues her? Somebody, I can't think. It's that. Billy. Billy swoops in and rescues her, yeah, yes. because she says, help, they're all speaking Arabic, but I thought I heard the phrase for gangbang, and I've been doing all this right. coke. Um, yeah, totally. This is verbatim from the movie. Verbatim from the movie. I've been doing all this coke, uh, except uh, I, I don't want to have a gangbang. I just want to hang out and, and, um, and do coke. And so he shows up, knocks on the door. The guys are all sitting around in their business suits, uh, watching cartoons and looking a little bemused and it's like what well, maybe did she just follow them into the room for the coke it just it didn't even seem like you know the, it, it seemed like they were just these guys weirdly wearing suits doing coke and watching cartoons sure and it's like oh we picked up this girl at the bar who knows maybe it was part of like maybe there was an international banking dinner i guess this is how it worked out so she ended up in the room did a lot of coke and then she's like i want to go out i want to party I want to call my friend because I don't want to waste this Coke. And he's like, you should go home. Right. right. And then she drives him home. And then they end up in his driveway at some yes. point. Well, it's not, yeah, his driveway where his wife lives with their kid. And then he puts the moves on her and she's like, wait, I needed a friend. And then Billy is super, like, just totally gross, takes her keys puts her keys down his pants to try to get her to open his pants yep. and then then says get in the car and assume the that's missionary right she pushes that, him out of the car and he says get back in the car and assume the missionary position like what like all of these people should be in jail i know i know they're so bad they're so beautiful and so horrible worst people ever and then of course yeah his wife opens the door with the baby while he's on the ground and and she drives away and yeah, so then time passes and her who friend, knows how much? Who knows how much she meets her friends, she meets Wendy and Leslie for lunch and she's tricked into thinking it's an intervention for Wendy, but it turns out that uh, Wendy and Leslie were doing a special intervention for her. So they meet at some sort of like soup kitchen place where of course Wendy because all she does is be virginal and the good person. And uh, you're doing so poorly you're spending all this money and you're having this affair with your boss and we're worried about you and then things which happen. is the segue for most of this movie things happen. things happen it's day it's night uh wendy tells her dad she doesn't want to marry howie well okay so there's the scene where it's a it's halloween i don't know if this happened before or after the skiing i don't know where this the skiing was apparently happening in october in the DC area. Or maybe September. Who knows? Who knows? But there was a Halloween party. I just don't know. At St. Elmo's and Billy was playing his sax and then his wife comes in with some guy and they're making out to sort of show Billy because he's, uh, you know, sleeping with all these people. There's fisticuffs. There's people in Halloween costumes in St. Elmo's. Then there's another scene where Billy and Felicia has his wife are there and he's like no i i really love you i'm gonna clean up um that doesn't happen no at all that was like no minute and she's like no you know there's this other guy who who wants to marry me and i'm like who are these guys like felicia billy's wife and and baby mama has some other guy who wants to marry her and take care of her baby and and she's like we can get an annulment and and that that apparently comes to fruition like at a certain point later in the movie he reveals that that his wife's marrying this other guy and they're all like what they just graduated from college like 
They're so tired. Oh, and they're tired. They're so tired. They're so tired. Yeah. They're 22. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of self-created drama yeah. at 22, but this, yeah. this was over the top. I'm so I'm so tired. I'm so tired. I know this. I was very tired in this movie. And then I'm checking the, I'm like, what, what else can possibly happen? Well, the thing that happens is they get a phone call uh, that Jules has, they, they learned the friends learned that Jules has actually been out of work. Her boss has dumped her. The people who were mysteriously floating her money, her credit card companies or whatever, came and they took her Jeep away and they took away all her furniture and she has locked herself in her apartment. With all the windows open and it's freezing because it must be late fall. Jules, what are you doing? You're going to freeze to death. I think that's the idea. Jules, you're really scaring me now. The whole country is falling apart in these five bars and they perfect. We need a hacksaw or an experienced thief. I'll find Billy. I was kidding. He's working over at the Amico station on Michigan. I'll see if he's got something. He's just around the corner. Billy's working in a gas station. We needed the money. Jules! November! Yeah. So she's in this giant apartment and in the crisis situation is that she has uh, locked herself in her big pink room with no furniture and her friends cannot get in and they're all there. And there's this madness on the fire escape where the madness that Billy shows up. We don't know how they got a hold of Billy, but Billy shows up and he says, it's like things are pretty out of hand up there, which yeah. is another quote that we said all the time. And now we're, but now we're at the climax of the movie, which is Jules locked in her apartment with all the windows open, huddled on the ground the blue yeah. kind of you know gauzy curtains are blowing in the wind and everybody's out on the out on the on and she's not answering anybody okay so everybody's she's out not, everybody's on the fire escape and then and then they, they get a blowtorch where do they even get a blowtorch? what we need is a blowtorch i know and that's we were talking about like the physics of this there's there's a blowtorch somehow they get a blowtorch <laughs> They have to leap onto the fire escape and climb up the fire escape carrying this blowtorch. And what's more, Kirby knows how to use a yeah, blowtorch. Of course he does. He just, he's a journalist. How where, how where did he learn that? He's a journalist. He doesn't know that. Um, no, that's Alec. That's Alec. No, that's not Alec. That's Kevin. That's Kevin. I'm sorry. Kevin. Yes, Kevin. Andrew McCarthy knows how to use a, a blowtorch. But he does not know how to call right. a locksmith, which exactly. would have been exactly. the easier way to get in. So he's there because she has, they have a blowtorch because she has some sort of like metal grill over her windows that, um, but the windows are open and the grill is over the windows is quite spacious. And so either her apartment, <laughs> either her spacious apartment is a death trap or Andrew McCarthy could have just fucking reached in and unlatched the wire grill and just gone in that way. Yeah. Oh, it's hard to rank the assholes in this movie because Judd Nelson then dangles him over the fire escape. Oh yeah, it's a moment of truth. That's right. There's a moment where Kirby has run to get the blowtorch and Alec stares at Kevin and then grabs him by the lapels and holds him backwards over the fire escape yelling at him for having sex with Ali Shady's character. What's happening? How do you feel oh. now, best friend? Oh, my notes. You won't be needing your notes on the meaning of life anymore. Alex, stop it right now. You're going to kill us. This isn't going to solve anything. I think your political career, huh? Alex, stop it. That's all I've done for you. Well, I can't feel I've done a lot for you, too, so why don't you just pull me up? After he had been having sex with all sorts of people and, and not wanting her to have a career, but saying, you have to marry me, even though That's we're right. like 22. Yeah, so he's dangling him. She's down right. there like, oh, no, the two men 
in my life. Stop it. Stop it. And then, then stop just it. Move stop on from that it. moment. Because it's not like, oh, ha ha, yeah. I'm dangling you. It's like, I might, I yeah. might actually murder you. Meanwhile, Billy. Jules. Jules. Yeah. So Billy gets in. Okay. So somehow he gets into the front of the building without a key. Right. And then again, instead of maybe asking, you know, my suspicion is Ron had a spare key to her apartment. If Ron is her next door neighbor, really good friend, interior decorator, I would have gone, Ron, um, could you get into this? I bet he could have gotten in her apartment, but no, not drama. Well, and not only that, Ron is watching the whole thing with God with another fruity cocktail in his hand. He's just watching it. Watching it. You know, yeah. he needs popcorn. I yeah. I would watch a version of this movie from Ron's perspective. That's I would I would watch a version of this movie from Ron's yeah. apartment across the hall. Because yeah, yeah. Because you could just see like in Ron's head, he's just like straight people are crazy. <laughs> like, wow, they all need help. I thought, you know, I was really worried about Jules, you know, because she had this coke habit and I was doing redoing her apartment. But no, it turns out that maybe Jules is not the worst of her all these people all these strange people. And so Billy gets the fire extinguisher and goes to, to ram down, ram down her door, but she opens it. So there's a little bit of slapstick. It goes sliding across the yep. bare floor yep. and he discovers her weeping wrapped again in a blanket next to a giant clown head. <laughs> they didn't want the clown head. The creditors did not want the clown head. <laughs> yes. Somehow, somehow the, the clown head was not, they left the creditors left her with a blanket. That's right. <laughs> And a decapitated <laughs> clown. Right. And then there's then there's Billy's dramatic monologue, which connects to the the title of the movie, where he explains Saint Elmo's fire was this blaze in the sky, and sailors navigated. And who knows? I was I was flipping reading the Guardian or something at, at that point, you know, in another tab. So my question is how how is she still in that apartment if she has no money? Because she would have gotten evicted yeah. before this all happened. Well, she's very charming. You know, she seems to have a way with authority yeah. where they're giving her a pass all the time. So yeah, she's got a pass of some kind, but not with the creditors. Yeah. They came to take everything except the head. So apparently that pass is large quantities of cocaine. Yes. Yeah. So then Billy has decided. So, so he's like, okay, we're your friends. I'm here for you. He holds her and does not try to sexually assault her at that moment. Uh, he just gives her this speech about saying almost fire. No. <laughs> Jules, you know, honey, this isn't real. You know what it is? It's St. Elmo's fire. Electric flashes of light that appear in dark skies out of nowhere. Sailors would guide entire journeys by it, but the joke was on them, there was no fire. There wasn't even a St. Elmo. They made it up. They made it up because they thought they needed it to keep them going and things got tough. Just like you're making up all of this. And then uh, then he announces at some point, he is he's going to New York. Yes. To, to pursue... To play his sax. To play his saxophone. Yeah. And then the the final scene of the, the movie all the friends are back together everyone was fighting and um and not speaking and sexually assaulting each other and getting drunk and doing coke and they all end up at uh, essentially the greyhound station at what time because there was a clock it was dark outside there was a clock over the ticket desk that was visible that looked like it was about midnight you were looking for a clock for the whole movie you were like here is that clock <laughs> i have been seeking 
Yes, because I was like, what time is it? It's like Dark City, right. you know? Like, what season is it? What time is it? It's on the planet of assholes where there is no sun. <laughs> so, so they're, and, they, and they go to see him off. Oh because, my God, I'm so glad we're almost at the end of the movie. Almost at the end. Oh, yeah, I'm gonna have to, we're going to have to rehydrate after this. There's going to have to be an intermission in this, in this podcast. Uh, and the movie is, I think it's less than two hours long, but it's like Dr. Zhivago of the assholes. But, oh, they're the best. Okay. So we're all there. It's the, we're all together. Everybody is. Yeah. We'll always be And they're together. all saying goodbye because Billy is going, he's going so far away. He's going to New York City, which is 200 miles away. Hopefully we'll be receiving child support payments from. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So they're all treating it like he is going across the ocean. Okay, this is a commute that people do on the Asela every day. <laughs> Taking a bus up to New York City from, from D.C., but they're like, goodbye. Was it, was it further in the 80s? Did we feel yeah, that it was, it was farther I away? Guess when it was a couple hundred miles. The East Coast, like that's really, really far for East Coast. It's in California. It's yeah. nothing. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, his, he, all his parting gifts. Oh, we forgot the biggest parting gift of all. Oh, how could we forget the parting gift? <laughs> because there were so that many Billy asked for. Oh God, I just want to crawl under the table. Okay. So in this parting, this parting gift is somehow he's back. Are they back in the where? Oh no, she got her own apartment. Yes, Wendy. So gets her so own. Wendy apartment. got her own apartment. She's not going to marry. Which is a big step she she leaves Howie. Right. She's like, I don't love you, Howie. Uh, I, I gave my car to a sociopath. Uh, I'm getting my own apartment. And she's painting her apartment with with a brush that's about a half an inch wide. I don't know what. Yeah. Yeah. I, should, I don't know what she's doing with that brush. She's a delicate soul. In her apartment. Soul. But, but she's like, oh, I had a peanut butter sandwich last night it was the best because it was in my own apartment and at that point i was like yeah girl stay like get away from all these people and her apartment is also enormous but again she at least comes from a a wealthy family then billy's hanging out with her and he's like yeah so i'm you know i'm going to new york the saxophone all of this and he's like so are you still a virgin and yeah she correctly asks like what is your obsession with my sex life that's creepy. And he's like, well, you know, I know I've been sponging off you and taking all your money and crashing all your cars. I'm such a good friend. Can I ask you for one more gift before I leave? Yeah. Can I ask you for a parting gift? Yeah. Is how he puts it. Literally. Staring lovingly, tenderly and lovingly into her eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And so then he, the gift is apparently her virginity. Like what would have the if she'd been, if she'd said no, I gave it up to Howie. Would he have been like, oh, never mind. I'm, I'm just gonna go to the Greyhound station from here. Forget it. Oh yeah. God. So, oh my God. So he, I guess, deflowers the very pregnant mare, winning him tenderly, <laughs> tenderly deflowers. Um, and and then at some other point, all the friends go to the the Greyhound station to bid him this farewell. Like, oh, we can't believe the gang is breaking up. Um, that's right. That's right. That's right. It's a different time. Different time. Oh, we're we're all growing. We're growing up. We're time. growing apart because uh, he's going two hours away, and uh, and of course, uh, Andrew McCarthy, uh, Kevin, uh, presents him with a parting gift of a pack of Newports, I believe. Yes. <laughs> Smoke up, Johnny. Yeah, and he says because it's a long bus ride, and then I'm picturing 
I'm picturing Rob Lowe smoking cigarettes on a Greyhound, but it was different times, different times. 18 year olds could drink in bars and you could smoke on a Greyhound. And, and then they all walk off and they walk, um, they walk back to the bar and they look inside and see all these, the youths cavorting in the bar. And they're like, Oh, you know, we all. Well, and remember, and remember on the way, Ali Sheedy breaks it to Kevin and Alec that she needs some time to herself oh, yeah. and she loves them both. Yeah. But she, but she needs to be alone. For yeah. A while. Cause they're good. And, but can we still be friends? And they kind of go, okay, okay gosh. Shucks. 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 I guess, yeah. I guess we're not, not going to keep you locked up in a tower. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, but they go by the bar and, and they look in the window and they're like, "Oh yeah, we're 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 kind of past that." But you know, we won't we won't get uh, drinks tonight because we have to get up for work in the morning, or you know, Jules has to get up and and look for a job. And uh, well, they're going to do brunch instead. Brunch, yes, because you know, brunch is brunch is grown up. Brunch is is grown up. Brunch is, and you know, That's you know right. where they're going to meet for brunch because they've grown past St. Elmo's. Hula hands. Where? Oh, yeah. <laughs> adults adults go to hula hands if it's somebody's birthday they'll get a free dessert yeah yeah so so they'll be having their bottomless bloody marys at hula hands like adults like you like do. you do and then finally the music swells and we are done and we can stop with this this object which will haunt me. I know. I'm so glad we were able to work through it together though. We were able to to work through it together. And so this movie came out the same year as The Breakfast Club. It did. It sure did. And 60% of The Breakfast Club was in this movie. They were busy. It was busy times for the Brat Pack. And this is not even like Joel Schumacher's worst movie. Because, of course, he made he has apologized for Batman and Robin, which was his 90s fiasco. <laughs> but he was not uh, an untalented person. He directed The Lost Boys, which was a great movie that introduced Kiefer Sutherland. Oh, yes. so the thing I really wanted to get back to, which was amazing. So, so some people, most people came out of this movie okay, shockingly. Some people's careers were kind of damaged. The winner, the winner of St. Elmo's Fire was Andy McDowell. Now, why do you say that? Because um, her big movie debut was uh, a year or two earlier in um, Greystroke or Greystoke, the Tarzan movie. And she, uh, I guess, had a Southern accent. She was supposed to be a a young American woman, love interest of Tarzan in that movie. But the studio watched it and they disliked her Southern accent so much that her entire role – was dubbed over by Glenn Close. My brain just melted. So if you go back, and now now I feel that this is a movie I'm now going to have to put on the list because... The list. The list of 80s movies because she, every single one of her lines, and she didn't find this directly. She found out, um, like going in to do some other some follow-up work for the movie and that's when she found out like Nobody oh yeah we don't need you to like redo any of your lines from grace stoke the legend of tarzan lord of the apes oscar winning film for some things yeah so the entire every speaking part for miss jane porter has been dubbed over by glenn close and this was a, an enormous trauma to her as an actor right well this was early in her career 
And she thought, I am so humiliated. I will never work again. And so the fact that Joel Schumacher saved her and gave her one of the, well, it's only embarrassing to the extent that she was uh, coddling her psychopathic stalker, that he gave her a role. And then after that, she was kind of redeemed because the movie was successful. Uh, she did not embarrass herself. Um, Rob Lowe got a Razzie for worst acting for this movie. He did. But, uh, but Andy McDowell had a speaking part in which she did not perform so poorly. She had to be completely dubbed over by another actor. And then that actually resuscitated her career. And, and she was able to get past the trauma and then go on and be very, very successful. In green card. So she she was the the winner of, of this, uh, this whole disaster. Um, but people went on to... Uh, to fantastic other careers and yeah so the so the breakfast club so all these people in their 20s rob lowe was only about 19 but he was supposed to be playing a, a married dad everybody else was was roughly like 20 21 years old during production probably except judd nelson was like four years older than everybody else mayor winningham was four years older than everybody else so um so yeah so now now we reach the point so what would you say we are doing a score a rewatchability score out of a hundred, where would you put this? Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna put it in two ways. <laughs> so if it's just me never having oh rewatching, oh it is rewatching. So it's not like I can just I can separate out sort of the 14 year old me from yeah no. This score represents your advice to to someone who maybe hasn't seen the movie in a long time, and it's like oh what will happen to you if you go. Watch it again. Do I recommend you know, this? I, I feel that I'm betraying my childhood by saying this, but I'm going to put it at like a 20%, like a 20, like a 20. I don't know if it's a percent, but it's, it's 20. low. It's low. like, there is, there yeah. is some fun cringe worthy aspects that are like, Oh, I forgot about that. Oh, how can that be possible? But like, if you want to spend an hour and a half reliving sort of some of those stirrings of your youth, there are far better movies to spend time with. Yeah. Yeah. I think with this one, I, I was thinking about this and I thought maybe if negative numbers were possible, because now I can't get this out of my mind. And I think it's going to, it's going to lodge in there. It's going to lodge in there. This is what I'm saying. And I don't know how or why this is the case, but watching this movie I have it like something in me fundamentally shifted. And I don't know if it's like, I don't, I don't know what it is. I'm trying, I got I'm trying to shift it back though. Cause it's uncomfortable. I feel uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. I feel like there's another movie that we will have to watch starring some of these people or perhaps with other music that that's more of an earworm. Yeah. So for that reason, like I, Ooh, because yeah, again, we're not, we're not really calibrated. Maybe I'll give it like a, a 15. I don't know. Yeah. Cause like, I feel like maybe, maybe there's something, but, uh, but so what was, what would you think is the most eighties uh, aspect of this movie? The pearls for sure. The pearls. The pearls yeah. Yeah. For sure. At, yeah. That was, I'm going to say the pearls and the, and the man mural in, in Demi Moore's apartment. Yeah. Why, what do you think the most yeah. eighties aspect is? Um, besides the large quantity of cocaine, which will uh, continue 
to, I guess, be a theme. We'll go back and say, wow, they were, everybody was smoking and doing cocaine. It really was. It's not yeah. just a stereotype. And, um, and actually the, the, the place they were is familiar to me for a whole other set of reasons because the, the exterior of the bar of St. Elmo's bar was actually filmed on the universal back lot right around the corner from the square, the town square from um, another 1985 movie, uh, Back to the Future. And so, yeah, and since I grew up in the Valley, uh, we, we took the Ooh. studio tour, you know, quite a few times as I was growing up. So I went past that street in the little tram quite a, quite a lot. So, um, yeah, so, so maybe mostly the most 80s part of this movie is, is never, I think the thing that shifted is never wanting to go back to that time period again. You know, like the, the Breakfast Club uh, raised some fond memories. <laughs> I went to the prom in that uh, that ballroom, and I thought, oh, there were some. I had some happy moments, and 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 that character was like she was very yes. strong willed and independent, and isn't that nice? And the music, yes. the music in that movie was so good. But this one, I'm like, wow, shut the door, shut the door. Right. I don't even know if I want to continue doing this podcast after seeing this movie because because now I'm afraid. <laughs> Now I'm afraid of what might be worse. <laughs> but yeah, but I I really appreciate you. Um, uh, What's going to be unearthed? Helping yeah. me have this really the striking ex- life experience. I feel this is a much more significant life experience than I was really expecting. Very very surprising. Many moments, but it's did. surprising, right? We did, yeah. I think, in this case, yeah. live up to the the title yeah. and really well, uncover many many surprisingly problematic aspects of this. So, uh, so thank you so much, uh, Christina. You're welcome. Thank you. I'm so exhausted. <laughs> I don't even know what time it is uh, in the real world anymore. It doesn't matter. It's we're on St. Elmo's time now. This has been Surprisingly Problematic. Tune in next time for another awkward nostalgia fest.